This is God's word taken from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and then I will read Mark chapter 5 uh, also. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting sitting there and questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never saw anything like this. Now look over in Mark chapter 5, verses 24 through 34. And he went with him. And a crowd, a great crowd, followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians And had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself... That power had gone out of him. I think that's amazing. He perceived that power had gone out of him. Immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is God's word. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Grady, for your prayer. I can't find you now, but you prayed for me, I thank you. I'm glad to be back with y'all. You know, um year and a half ago when I was here. Um, well, let me begin like this. I do conferences all over the country. That's a really nice part of my work. I basically do therapy in my office, and then about once a month I travel somewhere. Well, a year and a half ago, I was here with you guys, and I just had this, like, God, this feels good. I like these people. This is comfortable. And I, and I backed off and realized, wait, these are, you guys are, are deep 
South people, just like me. And I realize I rarely speak to people that feel like home, you know. I mean, you guys feel, you know, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, right? You guys feel like Jackson people. Only Birmingham people are like Jackson people who are cool enough to not live in Jackson, all right? So, but it's the same kind of vibe, you know. It's the, the deep south thing. It feels good. It's refreshing. I feel at home with y'all. Um, I'm glad to be here. I love speaking about parenting or marriage or, you know. Um, my favorite thing to speak about, though, is our Lord. Uh, I so deeply enjoy the opportunity to reflect aloud with his people about who he is and what his heart is like. I'm grateful to Jason and Martin and the session for the trust that you give me in letting me speak. Uh, we spent the weekend talking about parenting, and so I thought it would be appropriate to sort of maintain our parenting theme for our worship here this morning. And if you're a Christian, that's not difficult, because if you're a Christian, you're not like doing religion. You're somebody's child, right? You're a child of God himself. In uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes God out of the Old Testament, and God says to the people, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and, and, and they will be my people, his song of the covenant. And if you come out from their midst, the midst of the unbelievers, and be separate from them and touch no unclean thing, I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters of whom? Of the Lord Almighty. He calls us his sons and his daughters. That's where I want to go this morning. I love the book of Mark. I read the book of Mark a lot. I'm very drawn to it. Um, I've wondered sometimes why. The little bit of research I've done on it has told me that Mark was one of Peter's favorite disciples. Sort of like Peter was one of Jesus's. And supposedly then the book of Mark is, 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 is Peter's stories about Jesus. And, you know, who doesn't like Peter? No wonder Mark has that sort of dynamism to it. But I'm very struck by the person of Jesus that I find in the book of Mark. He's alive and he's loving and he's aggressive and he's pursuing. And so I want to look at two stories out of the book of Mark together with you this morning that I think reflect one another. And I think they reflect his heart toward us. But mostly I think they reflect words of family and what he invites us to, what he wants with us. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Both of these stories involve people who are desperate and alone, like we often are sometimes. And bottom line, they involve Christ's pursuit of them and inviting them into his heart and in his family. Now, as y'all might remember from when I've preached to you before, uh, I don't do heavy theology from the pulpit. I'm not a theologian. I'm a psychologist. Basically, I just tell Bible stories, you know, real sophisticated stuff. I mean, I'd use a felt board if you had one up here, all right? So I want to look at some Bible stories and listen for the family that Jesus invites us to. In the first story, Jesus is in his hometown. At some point, Jesus and his parents moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And in this story, contrary to what he says about a prophet not being welcome in his own hometown, um, he's being mobbed, all right? He's in someone's home, and he's preaching to them all. And the house is so crowded that people are, like, you know, flooding out the doors. Which, by the way, has always intrigued me. Don't you think it's interesting that Jesus, I mean, 
the Son of God, the most holy, righteous person who ever walked the planet, was impossibly attractive to people who were broken and sinful. What's that about? I mean, the only people who were repelled by him were people who thought that they were righteous. So that's always intrigued me. What is it about him that drew people who ordinarily would uh, run from religion? Can we be like that? What was that quality? Anyway, he's preaching. And suddenly the whole sermon is interrupted by this loud banging and clanging and disruption, what my grandmother would have called a commotion up above them. Someone is literally taking the roof apart in this house. Now, that's, this is more or less radical depending on who you read. Like some commentators say that, that Hebrew roofs had sort of a thatch or an awning that you could remove, sort of like a sunroof. That's no fun, right? Most commentators, however, recognize that this is literally men digging through the plaster ceiling. The Greek word here implies aggressive demolition. That's what I'm talking about, all right? So, I imagine, you know, as all this racket starts happening, that everything half, everything stops. Everybody, you know, even Jesus, they stop and start looking up at what's going on. The preaching stops, of course. It's, it'd be like if somebody started crawling around on these beams up overhead, you would, you would be distracted. You'd be looking up. What are they doing? Even during my spellbinding sermon, you would not be paying attention to me anymore, all right? They did what we would all do. And, and as they look, suddenly these faces appear, peering down through the hole, down into the living room. And if that weren't surprising enough, suddenly there's a man's body being lowered down through the hole by ropes. Crazy stuff, right? But what catches Jesus' Jesus's attention, we're told, is not the hole and not the digging and not the, you know, the trapeze act of the guy on the ropes. We are told that what he sees is their faith. That's his first reaction that the passage describes. And when he saw their faith, not and when he saw them coming down through the hole, when he saw their faith. You're going to hear the word faith a couple of different times this morning in this sermon. Let's take a really brief pause. What's faith? Let's ask the shrink, okay? Technically, faith is a bonding capacity. Faith is a orientation of the heart that ties us to someone else. Psychologically speaking, faith is an orientation that lets me be connected to you through my vulnerability, through my dependence. And faith is what ties us to someone we need. Faith is what's going to tie these people to Jesus. Sort of like love is what ties you to your fiancé. You're not in love with love. You're not going to marry love, you're going to marry your fiance, but love is that thing that ties you to them, right? So faith is that heart response that ties us to Jesus, that says, I'm going to make my heart vulnerable and dependent. That's how I'm going to orient towards you. That's why Jesus notices it. That's why Jesus wants it. It's the thing in a dependent human that makes us reach for him and hang on to him. We've called it faith. So now, as they lower this man down through the ceiling in faith, seeking healing, paralyzed and unable to walk, and in response to their faith, Jesus leans down and he puts his hand on this man's shoulder and he says to him, 
son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, every time I've ever heard this story told, you know, like in Sunday school or a sermon preached on it, and I've been going to church for 58 years, all right? Um, I've heard these stories a lot. I, as a fact, I can tell you all this. I had a drug problem as a child. I was drugged to Sunday school, drugged to church. Okay. Um, every time I've ever heard this sermon preached on this, it, the, 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 the moral of the story goes something like this. Now, here's a lesson we can all learn, y'all. You know, we want Jesus to fix our problems, and we want Jesus to heal our infirmities. This guy wanted to have his legs healed. But we don't know what our real problem is. Our real problem is we need our sins forgiven. And we want to be healed and fixed, but Jesus is saying no. Almost as if this guy and us are going to be disappointed that he came all this way. These guys dug a hole in the ceiling for crying out loud, and he's not going to get his legs fixed. Jesus is just going to forgive his sins. And the, and the, the message I often hear is, so y'all learn what we really need. Y'all learn a lesson here. What we really need is our sins forgiven. That's why Jesus does this. And maybe that's true. And, of course, that is what we need most, ultimately, eternally. And that's right, you know. But I was thinking about the story, and something in me made me stop, made me stop and think when this happened in the story. I thought, what if that's not this story? Just saying. I want to throw out another possibility at this point and sort of kick this sermon into gear. What if this man was not disappointed that that's the first thing Jesus said to him? What if Jesus knew exactly what this man needed to hear? Think about it. This guy was a paralytic in the ancient Near East. How long did those guys expect to live? In fact, Charles Spurgeon, as I read his thoughts on this passage, he said perhaps the reason these men were in such a hurry to get their friend to Jesus was that he was close to death. Think like Sherlock here for a minute, okay? They could have waited outside until after the sermon. They could have seen Jesus tomorrow. This was his hometown. They knew his hangouts. Why crawl on top of someone else's house and dig a hole in their ceiling to get to Jesus now? You do the math. Why would someone do that? Like the EMTs busting into a house and rushing some guy off to the hospital. Only instead of rushing him out of the house to the hospital, they're rushing him into the house to the hospital. I wondered what if these guys were, and this man and his friends were, were worried and afraid about his death. There's this ridiculous kind of urgency in this story, this immediacy. So what would that man need? What would he feel? Well, do you ever think about your death? Does it ever scare you, the thought of meeting God, the thought of eternity? I don't know how secure you are in your faith, but I get scared sometimes. I don't know if you ever wake up in the middle of the night and wonder, like, I'm really going to die. I have a client who was diagnosed with cancer a few years back, and I walked with her through the whole process of her cancer. We talked about death. We sat in that place over and over and over again together. And she died this week. And I wondered, what, what, did she think about our, our conversations? Did our conversations help her make that transition? That's what she and I started calling it, her transition. 
because I said you're not going to die. But does that ever scare you? The thought of meeting God forever? I mean, am I really yes? I don't know about y'all, but I'm kind of bad. Have I been too bad? Does he really want me? What are you going to feel on on your deathbed? What if Jesus knew exactly what this man needed to hear? In fact, in the Matthew version of the story, Jesus begins his interaction with the paralytic man by comforting him. He says, take heart, fear not. It's the first thing he says to him. Jesus knows this guy is afraid. This guy has just met his maker. So what does Jesus say to him? What does Jesus do? Jesus gets down and touches him and says, son. Son. Your sins are forgiven. What would you give at the times in which you are most vulnerable or most scared or even when you are about to die? Have Jesus kneel down at your side and put his hand on your shoulder and call you son. You're my son. And your sins are forgiven. Come home to me. I wonder if Jesus knew exactly what this man needed the most. And answered his primary question. And all of our primary questions in the middle of the night. Do you really love me Jesus? Do you really want me? And in answer Jesus calls him son. And he calls us son. And he says to those of us who trust in him, he says, yeah, I get it. You are paralyzed. I've seen you try. And you are dying, literally, as we speak. And you fail, and you fail, and you fail, and you can't do, and you're afraid. But don't be afraid. I kneel down and call you son. Get to know the family to which you belong. We're family now. He calls us son. Now, next in this story is a little bit of a throwaway, but I can't resist. Um, Next, we get a little bit of a glimpse into the subjective experience of what it was like to be Jesus. I think about these things. What was it like to be Jesus on earth? What did it feel like to be Jesus? I'm a shrimp. Throw me a bone, right? So there are these scribes here, all right? And they're disturbed at this whole interaction, this forgiveness of sins thing, knowing correctly that only God can forgive sins. And Jesus hears their hearts, and he's going to respond to them in a minute with a demonstration of his power and a demonstration of who he is. But first, he's going to give us a little glimpse into what it's like to be him. He says to them, which do you think is easier To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Which is easier? I mean, do we think of things being easier or harder for Jesus? I mean, we all know that experience, right? Like, it's uh, easy to make scrambled eggs. It's hard to make eggs Benedict. Um, It's easy to play tennis at the club. It's hard to play Djokovic at the U.S. Open, all right? And for Jesus... It's easy to heal heal paralyzed legs and make somebody walk. That's easy. That's easy. It's hard to forgive sins. The cost for Jesus will be deeply hard. Calling us sons 
will come at a huge cost to him. And he knew it, and he anticipated it, and he thought about it. It would be hard. It will be hard. This is the person we relate to. We have a relationship with a person, and he's alive, and he hurts, and he gets sad, and he died for you, and it was hard. Let's look at our other story. In Mark 5, Jesus, again, is quite occupied, this time with one of the guys who's usually on his case. You know, Jairus is a uh, ruler in the synagogue, and usually these are the guys who are sort of mumbling in the background against Jesus. But in this case, Jairus needs his help. Jairus' daughter is deathly ill, and Jesus immediately consents to help him, and he starts his trip off to Jairus' house, and the crowds, the throngs, decide to join along, and apparently there's this mob on all sides, and everybody's like, hey, Jesus is going to Jairus' house, you know, let's take the day off work, and they're all gone, all right? And suddenly, as we watch this, the, the, the camera, watching Jesus walk away with the crowd with him, the camera finds this one anonymous woman in the crowd, and I literally mean anonymous. Notice in the case of both this woman and the paralyzed man, neither one of these people are given names. Jesus is the only person who names them in any way. But one other thing that we learn about her is that she has some form of hemorrhaging, some sort of an internal bleeding that will not stop and has not stopped for 12 years. And even the account of this story in the, uh, the book of Luke, the doctor, he uh, confesses that you know, she's seen doctors and the doctors have not been able to help her. In fact, they've made her worse. Now, one of the things that we can deduce from this, her blood flow, is that she has had a very lonely 12 years. The kind of blood flow that she had made her ceremonially unclean according to the Old Testament law, which means that no one could touch her and she could not be touched. Uh, she had to take uh, Passover a month late. She could not approach the tabernacle. There was even implication of judgment of death on those who remained unclean. And she has not touched another human being or been touched by another human being for 12 years. So she is deeply alone. But we hear that she has heard about Jesus. And you can kind of imagine the plan that she concocts here. She thinks, okay, I'm unclean, and I can't have any direct contact with anybody, much less this holy teacher. I'm untouchable. But perhaps if I'm sneaky, perhaps if I come up kind of behind him, you know, real quiet-like, and just touch his garment, not him, maybe I can get away with it. All right, now back to our gimbaled, elevated track camera angle, watching the crowd and Jesus Jesus moving away, and into scene comes this woman. She's being careful. She's approaching him, looking around. She doesn't want to get busted by the disciples, but she moves closer and closer to Jesus' back, reaching out, trying to touch the fringe of his garment. And as she gets closer, at last she closes her hand on it, and she can feel it in her hand. She can feel it's dirty, and it's gritty. And then suddenly she feels something else. The bleeding has stopped. She can feel it. And Jesus feels it. We're told that 
he can feel the power move through him. Another interesting recognition of uh, Jesus' subjective experience. So he stops and he turns and he asks a question. A question I assume he knows the answer to. But he says, who touched me? Now why does Jesus do this? I mean, you know, a couple of chapters earlier he was reading the scribes' minds, right? I mean, he knows the answer to this question. So why does he ask? Well, get to know him. He asks because he wants to touch this woman. He does not want this woman to get away with her sneaky little alone plan. He wants this woman with no name to encounter him. He wants her to be touched. He wants her to be engaged. And all of a sudden she's busted. And the crowd stops and they're looking around. You know, who is the culprit? Sort of like those times in elementary school when some kid makes a rude noise and the teacher spins around and goes, who made that noise? And everybody's like freezes, you know, kind of like that. I never, that was never me. Even the disciples think this is ridiculous. They're like, Jesus, the whole mob is going the same direction. There's like elbows and shoulders and people are stepping on each other's sandals. Come on. You know, but Jesus stands his ground here. He says, who touched me? And the woman, realizing that she's busted, comes forward, terrified. For a woman to even speak publicly at all in this culture was scandalous, much less for this unclean woman to speak to this holy teacher. But we're told in Mark that she tells him the whole truth. I love that. Mark says she told him the whole truth. What's the whole truth? Her story, she says, it was me. It was me. I've had an unclean bleeding 12 years, and I've tried everything but you. I've tried everyone. I've looked everywhere, and I'm chronically unclean. But I thought maybe if I just touched your garment, you'd be able to heal me and give me something no one else ever has, and then I could just sneak away again. And what does Jesus say to her? He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He calls her daughter. And the Greek here is a filial, tender family term of the word daughter, almost like babe girl. She has no name. She has been untouched for 12 years. She doesn't even feel like she can approach Jesus. But Jesus wants family. Jesus wants personal. Jesus wants his daughter. This is our salvation, gang. This is our family. Um, and this is us again. In the first story, we are paralyzed and we are afraid and we are unable. And in this story, we are the unclean. We are the alone. And if you're unclean like me, there's this beautifully poetic moment in this story if you know your Old Testament law. Because what happens in Old Testament law if the unclean touches the clean? The clean is spoiled. Now they're both unclean. Now you're both off to the tabernacle to go through all sorts of laborious ceremonial cleansing. But in this story... When the unclean touches the clean, the clean isn't sullied. The unclean is cleansed. The unclean becomes clean. And what happens when you bring your dirtiness to Christ? 
If you're like me, you might sometimes feel like it's too much for him. That's going to sully him. It's going to sully your relationship with him. You're ashamed. You want to hide. You want to be untouched. You want to be in secret. You don't. You can't even imagine him seeing you. You know, do that thing or treat that person that way. Afraid our uncleanness is going to ruin it. This story reminds us. This story comforts us that the miracle is that when we touch Christ and He touches us, He doesn't start to look like us. We start to look like Him. And my friends, everything starts to look like him. Let me ask you this. Why does Jesus spend so much time in the New Testament healing people? Like I said, I grew up in the church. I've heard these stories my whole life. And you kind of get used to them. You know, Jesus heals people. That's what he does, right? Well, why? Why heal people? Is it to demonstrate his divinity? Maybe. Well, I mean, to do that, he could have made animals talk or turned the sky purple. I don't know. Why heal people? Why cast out demons? Why raise people from the dead? Why those things? Well, I'll tell you. Got any other English lit majors in the room besides me? All right. There's a term in English literature called foreshadowing. I'm sure you know of it. And foreshadowing means something happens early in the story that sort of pre-echoes something that's going to happen later in the story. There's a guy who's going to die later in the story, but early in the story he's walking through a church graveyard and the church bell chimes and you know, chills go up his back. You know, spooky. Foreshadowing. Well, Jesus heals as foreshadowing, but not as a foreshadowing of death, but a foreshadowing of life. See, Jesus didn't come into the world just to save you from the penalty of your sins. You're thinking too small. Jesus came into a world that God had made perfect ages before, a world in which he could walk in, in the cool of the day with his sons and his daughters, a world in which they could be naked and not ashamed, no hiding. They lived touched, really who they were in intimacy with their father. A world in which no one hurt, and a world in which no one died, and a world in which there was no paralysis, and a world in which there was no hemorrhaging. And sin destroyed that. Well, Jesus comes not just to make everything right between us and God. Jesus comes to make everything right. No more sickness, no more death, no more divorces, no more job loss. No more financial struggle, no more humiliation, no more fear. He heals in the Gospels as a foreshadowing of the new world, of the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come. His healing ministry is a foreshadowing of that restoration, a restoration of family. After all, he doesn't just heal these people in Mark. He calls them son and he calls them daughter. Healing ain't the point. So you think about your own life and you think about your own sin and you think about your own struggles and maybe you're hopeless and maybe you've tried everything and maybe you've prayed for deliverance and maybe you sin big, maybe you sin secret, maybe those parts of you have not been touched in 12 years. And maybe you've tried every doctor and maybe you don't even have a name. But in your unclean, lost state, maybe you have a little faith. 
that thing that ties our heart to him in dependence that says, I am unable, but I'm going to trust that you are able. And I cannot, but I want to reach for you because I believe that you can. And I make myself vulnerable to you that you will. Well, I believe that if you do that, he will whirl around to find you. And not just heal you, and not just save you, but to call you his son, or to call you his daughter. And he tells us to call his father, Father, Abba, Daddy. This is family, remember? The broken or welcomed and the fearful are comforted and the alone are gathered into arms with a father and a son and a spirit and lots and lots of little sons and daughters calling him Abba and living with him forever. For you have not received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Welcome to the family. Let's pray. I don't think we really get you, Lord. Um, we often live with sort of a vulnerability of like, would he tolerate me? Could he possibly, you know, sort of let me in the back door somehow? And we don't get a God who runs to us. We don't get a God who doesn't just say, yeah, I forgive you. We don't get a God who says, it blows our mind that you would not just say, we I forgive you. But you would say, come here and be my son. And be my son. And be my daughter. We don't get that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would form room in our hearts for that kind of love. And that that kind of love would transform us. To know you and to see you, how could we not want to be more like you? I pray that that sort of adoption would help us to grow in conviction to want to be more like our Father. In the name of Christ we pray.